Lucas on Life. Hello, welcome to Lucas on Life. I'm Jeff Lucas. This week on Lucas on Life, we're thinking about thinking. It was a chilly Irish morning. My eyes flickered open and I focused on the chalet ceiling. Where was I and what was I doing here in this holiday shed? Ah, that was it. I was speaking at a conference in the south of Ireland. It was called Together for the Kingdom. A couple of thousand believers from both sides of the border had taken over a holiday camp for a week of teaching and celebration. Frankly, the camp itself had seen better days, but the sense of the presence of God around the place more than made up for the fading glory of the sight. My wife Kay was still asleep, and Kelly and Richard were apparently also still in the land of Nod. Time, I thought, for a shower. The bathroom was at the rear of the chalet. This meant that I would have to circumnavigate my way out of our bedroom, across the sitting room kitchenette, down the hallway, and turn first left into said bathroom. Easy. Or so I thought. I didn't actually have any clothes on, but I felt it would be completely safe to sprint to the bathroom. After all, everyone else in the Lucas clan was fast asleep, so my naked expedition would surely go unnoticed. I inched quietly out of bed, opened the bedroom door, and began my goose-bumped trip. I'd tiptoed halfway across the sitting room when suddenly I heard a noise behind me. I froze. It was the sound of a door being opened, the front door of the chalet, actually. I immediately had a double revelation. Firstly, I realised that I had failed to lock the front door before retiring for the night, and secondly, from the clatter of carts outside, I realised that the cleaning ladies were doing their rounds. I was now in a major moral dilemma. In two seconds, I was going to have to have a naked encounter with a lady armed with a broom. Should I hurl my body up against the door, preventing the aforementioned lady from accessing our chalet and my nudity, or should I do a triple backflip into the well-equipped kitchenette and find some utensil with which to retrieve my modesty? I needn't have considered either option, because there was no time. This was a turbocharged cleaning lady. As I turned to face the opening door, that was a mistake, she popped her head round smiled sweetly, and looked me in the eye, for which I was most grateful. I froze to the spot and was speechless. We stood there, she and I, for what seemed about ten years, but it was only five seconds. I wonder what she would say. Would she apologise, scream, or laugh before beating a hasty retreat? A veteran cleaning lady like her had probably been in this position before, surely, but what would she say? She acted as if there was nothing untoward at all, and then she spoke. Her words surprised me, to say the least. Good morning, sir. Would you like me to change your sheets? I was stunned. Either this dear lady was a consummate professional, or she was just saying what she said about a dozen times every working morning of her life. Would you like me to change your sheets? Would you like me to change your sheets? Would you like... She was reading the script saying what she always said, doing what she always did. I found my tongue, thanked her for her offer, and advised her that I felt that our sheets were all right and could probably wait until tomorrow to be changed. Thank you very much. OK, then. Thank you, she smiled and went on to the chalet next door. I heard her knock at the door, open it, and then call out the same well-worn phrase. Would you like me to change on with the script? 
Another classic bit of script reading was observed during an aeroplane flight into Chicago. It had been a very long flight from England and I'd been sitting next to someone with a child who should have been called Damien, Child of the Beast. Sitting on my left was a good friend who had joined me for the trip. We were about 20 minutes away from landing at O'Hare International Airport when the pilot decided to make a special announcement. Pilot here, we have a slight problem. We're losing hydraulic fluid from the airplane. Actually, those of you seated on the right-hand side of the plane may be interested to see it shooting out of the wing. I was sitting on the right side. I looked out for the shooting liquid. It was indeed shooting. The pilot continued. This little problem means three things. First of all, we can't get the flaps to work. Great, I thought. This incy-wincy little problem means that we can't actually get the airplane to go downwards. Secondly, the pilot continued, we can't get the landing gear to lock. Super, I thought. If we do manage to get the airplane to head down towards the runway, then we can't land the thing anyway. But there was more news from the pilot. Thirdly, he said, we can't get the brakes to work. Hooray, I thought. If we do get down and we do actually manage to land, then we can't stop. Well, praise the Lord. I felt inclined to pray at this moment and have to admit that my prayer was somewhat high-pitched, a sort of Vienna Boys Choir act of intercession. My friend wasn't as brave or as spiritual as I and was attempting to climb into the overhead baggage compartment while screaming for his mother. All right, I exaggerate. The pilot decided to reassure us and his first attempt at reassurance wasn't terribly successful. Don't worry, everyone, he said. They've closed the rest of the airport down and we do have fire trucks and paramedics standing by. How comforting. More muffled screaming for parental help from above. The pilot's second attempt at calming the jagged nerves of his passengers was received with greater enthusiasm. Don't worry, everyone. We've managed to operate the flaps and we can come back there and pump the landing gear down by opening a little hatch in the walkway. We won't have any brakes, but we can throw the plane into reverse thrust and land quite safely. Please relax. We'll be fine. A wave of subdued relief seemed to sweep around the cabin, and cries of, Thank you, God, I love you, Mum, were heard from the overhead baggage compartment, but tension remained. As the descending plane approached the runway, we could see the red flashing lights of the emergency services. They weren't taking any chances. We went screaming down the runway, hotly pursued by eager fire trucks. And finally, after what seemed forever, we settled down to a halt right at the very end of the available tarmac. The plane was so in need of repair that a tow truck would be dispatched to tow us into the gate. Relief now swept through the plane. The men, who five minutes earlier were acting like gibbering chimpanzees, were now pretending that the whole thing had been a wonderful adventure. They gave each other high fives and laughed just a little too loudly. The ladies were a bit more honest. They hugged each other, dabbed at tears and exchanged body shop products. It was a warming sight. And as my friend said his farewells to the overhead baggage and climbed back down to join me, I noticed three nuns singing Kumbaya at the back of the plane. OK, I exaggerate again. Suddenly, the PA system crackled once more. It was our intrepid pilot with a few more carefully chosen words. As he coughed and cleared his throat, I wondered what he might say at this poignant moment. 
There we were, sweaty, traumatised, grateful to be alive, an episode that surely none of us would ever forget. So what would the pilot say to sum up our feelings at that moment? Would he give thanks to God or quote the poet Milton, the statesman Churchill, or some obscure Greek philosopher? He did none of those things. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, your pilot here. On behalf of the airline, I'd like to be the first to welcome you to Chicago. Have a nice day. Goodbye. That was it. No thanksgiving, no apology, no epic speech for the moment of our deliverance, just just the normal bit of script reading that he always used every time he landed a plane. A few moments of pressure, and then he snapped right back into the well-worn routine. We Christians can be quite proficient at script reading. Come to think of it, script reading is part of life. We go to work to get the money to buy the food, to give us the strength to go to work to get the money to buy the food, and so it goes on. Advertising on TV provides us with compelling instruction on the art of living. We must surely have that product if we're to survive. Culture presses in hungrily, demanding that we wear that certain fashionable item of clothing because those that produce that item insist that we do so. Unthinkingly, we march through life reading scripts that someone else has written, marching to a beat that is bashed out by an unknown drummer. We know, don't we? We live in an age of information overload and a famine of reflection. And we Christians aren't by any means exempt from this mindless script reading. Some Christians would rather die than actually think. As Gerald Coates puts it, some believers are so narrow-minded their ears touch in the middle. So may God help us to engage the brain that he's gifted us with and break out of the numbing, slavish obedience to our culture's tinny jingles and pre-prepared scripts. God, help us to think. Hi, I'm Sam Hales. If you're enjoying Lucas on Life, you'll love The Profile Podcast. Every week, we sit down with a leading Christian to find out more about their life, faith, and testimony. Here's Justin Welby. Part of my daily prayer discipline is praying in tongues every day, and not as a sort of occasional thing, but as just part of daily prayer. Listen to the full interview with Justin Welby now on The Profile Podcast. Just search for The Profile wherever you get your podcast from or visit premierchristianradio.com forward slash The Profile. This is Lucas on Life. I'm Jeff Lucas. And this week we are thinking about the need for us to think, the need for us to engage our brains, the brains that God has gifted us. Sometimes I look around the church and I ask an uncomfortable, and I hope not too unkind question. Are we daft? It's an uncomfortable thought, and it sounds quite uncharitable to ask it, but I've had a persistent question nagging away at me recently. Are Christians actually quite stupid? Would a revival mean the mass production of yet somewhat more daft people? This potentially unkind question nipped at my ankles while I was watching a chap on Christian television recently. He was loudly offering the promise of guaranteed riches and hyper-health in exchange for a donation to him, of course. The fact that he himself looked about 300 years old, on the brink of imminent death, and had the on-screen presence of a grinning ghost-trained skeleton seemed like a slight contradiction to my simple brain. He was proclaiming his message of massive riches from a building that looked like the inside of the gents at Waterloo Station, but that didn't deter what P.T. Barnum referred to as suckers 
from calling in in droves to take advantage of the offer. I was stunned. Why this rush of lemming-like believers willing to hold themselves over the precipice of mindlessness? My wife has now banned me from watching the chap at breakfast, or indeed at any other time, as she doesn't like soggy cornflakes running down the front of the television set. I have been to an event where the speaker continually emphasised two key messages. First, he regaled us with testimony about how his personal sense of security no longer comes from his ministry. The size of his ministry is not important. Secondly, he peppered just about every other sentence of his sermons with phrases that told us all loud and clear just how his ministry is big, growing, expanding, touching the nations and is generally intergalactic. People bought his tapes in droves, oblivious to the glaring fact that not only was he not practising what he was preaching, he was not even preaching what he had just been preaching, if you get my drift. Mad. I have witnessed further corporate stupidity in services where an apparent word of knowledge is shared. The landscape is perhaps familiar. Leader. Hmm, thank you, Lord, yes, yes. There's someone here tonight with a bad back. The crowd visibly cheers up, apparently oblivious to the fact that probably at least 50% of the people present have got bad backs, due in part to the cheap metal and canvas chairs purchased for a knockdown price from the Brethren Church that closed down last year. Leader. Yes, I can further say that this person with the aforementioned back problem is either male or female. Crowd looks around to scrutinise people of either gender in the midst. Leader. Hmm? Yes, there's more. This person with a back tormented by Satan, who is either male or female, was born of a woman. Crowd, amazingly impressed by this revelation, mutters gasps of astonishment at this precision and accuracy. And then there's the kind of praying for the sick, when it's not just that people are being given a little shove in order to help them fall over, which is bad enough. But I've been in meetings where the evangelist was using more karate chops than Jackie Chan. I know that God describes us humans as being like sheep, which, let's face it, aren't that bright. But is it really that many of Jesus' followers have in fact permanently kissed their brains goodbye and are now dabbing mint sauce behind their ears? Was Josh McDowell right in his assertion that most Christians have only got two brain cells, one's gone missing and the other's gone looking for it? Perhaps not. I just think that all too often we are so desperate for something, anything to happen, that we rush like Sahara-bound hikers to sip from any pool, no matter how muddy. But God's name isn't honoured by sleight-of-hand miracles, testimonies smattered with exaggeration, and Pavlovian congregations who are ready to jump whenever the leaders ring a bell. We feel that we must buy in to belong and that to think that something was meaningless perhaps betrays our own lack of depth and spirituality. I saw this in action when I attended a conference where the speaker shared what many described as deep teaching. That was really deep. Often actually means, I haven't got the first clue what he was rattling on about. How about you? Everyone that I asked said that they thought the sermon was great. When I asked the follow-up question, what was it about, everyone looked clueless. And there's another internal conspiracy that in the desperate desire to believe and to be positive, we feel that we might be letting the side down if we ask awkward questions. But a genuine inquiring mind is actually a sign of faithfulness, not treachery. 
questioning shows a hunger for the authentic rather than the superficial satisfying that fails any close inspection. Cynicism is deathly, but opening our mouths and swallowing everything wholesale ultimately brings discredit to the good name of God. So think, for God's sake. It can be difficult to recruit the right type of person. That's where Premier Job Search can help you. Employers choose us because they're looking for people who want more than just a job. They want to use their professional skills to serve God every day through their work. Whether you need a compassionate care worker, a faithful fundraiser, or an anointed accountant, visit premierjobsearch.co.uk. Premier Job Search, all types of jobs for all types of people. premierjobsearch.co.uk Sometimes Christians kiss their brains goodbye, particularly when they have a sense that the Holy Spirit is moving. Someone stands up and prophesies or has a word of knowledge. There can be an uncomfortable moment when the entire congregation feels rather nervous. This doesn't quite seem to be something that God is saying, and they're worried about it. When asking questions, often Christians are told, But don't quench the spirit. Don't question these things. If you do, the Lord will stop doing them. But that's entirely wrong. Paul wrote to the church in Thessaloniki, in that book in the Bible, 1 Thessalonians, and talks about not quenching the spirit. But then within a verse or two, he goes on to say, prove all things, hold fast to that which is good. In other words, we're not called to kiss our brains goodbye when we sense that God is around, but rather we're called to engage them. Lucas on Life.